This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. Listeners, Stephen here. This is the Doctor Who Writer Special number two. Our roving reporters, uh, Tony Whitmore and Laura Cohen, were in attendance at the Big Finish Day 3 in March of this year. And uh, they conducted some really lovely interviews with some Doctor Who writers. I just want to commend them on the great job they did. It's not easy doing interviews and talking to people about their work and things like that. And um, sometimes you can uh, say things people take the wrong way. Uh, and you might you might inadvertently make Stephen Moffat think that you're calling him old when you really just meant to say that he was a classic Who fan from way back in the day like yourself. And he probably will never speak to you again. But, you know... Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> luckily, Tony and Laura did not make any of those mistakes, and we have got the audio proof for you right here. Our first interview is with Tommy Donbavand. I'm probably butchering his last name. Uh, Tommy is new to Doctor Who, and uh, he's written his first Doctor Who book, and it is an 11th Doctor story, and it's called Shroud of Sorrow. Take it away, Laura and Tony. Tony for the Doctor Who podcast and I'm here with Tommy Dombavand um, who's written an 11th Doctor book. I have indeed, nice to be here. What's it called? It's called Shroud of Sorrow. Gripping tightly to the telephone behind one of the TARDIS doors, Clara cautiously leaned out over the water and risked a glance down at the chain as it disappeared into the frothy emerald storm below them. Nothing yet, she shouted back water dripping from her hair and into her eyes. She risked letting go of the door with one hand to wipe them. The TARDIS was now flying at close to a 45 degree angle. One slip and the doctor knew he would follow the chain out of the door and down into the water before he could say, Alfalva Matraxis. Spinning a wheel on the next console panel around, he reached out his free hand and flicked a series of switches, grinding the already screaming engines up a gear. Come on, sexy, he urged. I know you can do it. Thanks for the compliment, said Clara. I didn't know you cared. His cheeks flushing, the doctor released the switches long enough to tenderly pat the console. Sorry, dear, he whispered. I meant you, not her. Honest. Once again the chain creaked under the weight of its burden. The doctor eyed it warily, briefly wondering whether he'd chosen a strong enough metal for the task at hand. He kept a chain made from a dwarf star alloy on hand for really big jobs, but it would have taken at least ten of him to carry it up from the storeroom and he hadn't had time to make the telephone call to arrange that. There, cried Clara. I can see the ship. It's almost at the surface. Good, the doctor shouted. Let's go for one last pull. Gritting his teeth, he slammed another lever down, rerouting even more power to the ship's engines. Well, that's everything in the freezer room defrosting now. The chain clunked loudly as another metal link slid over the doorstep, splintering the wood and causing Clara to hold on tighter than ever. She flicked her long, dark hair out of her eyes, spattering the TARDIS doors with a mixture of mud and bubbles. The mess almost seemed to form the shape of a face. She stared at it for a moment, 
It looked almost like the TARDIS lurched and Clara fell back against the door, obliterating the pattern with her shoulder. She looked down again. Beneath her feet, an ocean of scented waves heaved and boiled. It was bizarre to think about. Less than 30 minutes ago, she'd been kneeling down there in what was hard-baked earth. This is the original novel starring the 11th Doctor as portrayed by Matt Smith and Clara. Yes, that's right. Clara is in this one. Um, the three novels coming out in April 2013 to help celebrate the 50th anniversary. And I got the one with Clara in. She's not in the other two. Um, but, of course, nobody knew anything about Clara. So I was lucky enough. Um, they said, do you want to see a script from uh, 7B, from, from the, the second part of the series? And, of course, I, I said, well, I'll think about it. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so they, they, they sent me a, uh, a script for one of, the, um, one of the episodes after I'd signed 13 or 14 disclaimers to say that I would never release them. Um, and brilliantly, every single page of that script is watermarked with my name on. So if it was ever released... Never leaked, they would know exactly who did it. So it's under firm lock and key in my house. Because, of course, you are a fan as well as a writer. I'm a massive fan, and it was wonderful to learn more about the new companion. Obviously, I don't know too much, um, and I haven't really let anything, any secrets go in Shroud of Sorrow because uh, the book comes out in about three weeks, so 10, 11 days after the, the series comes back again. So, um, and we have a copy of it right here, and it looks rather swish, I have to say. They've they've done a great job. Um, their new design covers, and I think I think there's a little touch of the reminiscence of the old Target covers there, you know, with the, the swirls and the symbols. So I'm really looking forward to people getting hold of it and reading it. And it's got a brand new alien in, brand new bad guy. So uh, hopefully people will enjoy it. So how did you get involved? How did they approach you? Um, I spent a lot of uh, time camping out in Justin Richards' back garden. <laughs> You've got some good dirt on him. Yes, carry, yeah, 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 carrying his bag to his car, that sort of thing. Um, well, just because through because I'm a, I'm a children's novelist, that's primarily what I've done in the past. Um, but my children's stuff is also family oriented. I've always put stuff in the books in my kids' books that the parents will enjoy as well. Gags and little throwaway um, mentions of characters and things that they will enjoy because I know there's a lot of parents who read with their, their children. And, and being such a fan of the show, I've sort of kept in touch with Justin and people like that. And I know Justin through the, the, the children's book writing that he's done as well. Um, and just sort of, you know, tried to keep my name in there. And eventually um, he gave me a call uh, end of last summer and uh, was on the phone for a good 10, 15 minutes before he mentioned who. And, of course, I'm sitting there thinking, why has he called me? Surely not to just chat. And how long does it generally take to write a novel like this? Um, start to finish... Probably about three months. Um, we did the synopsis first, which had to be cleared by Justin, and then, of course, had to be cleared by the BBC, had to be cleared by Cardiff. Um, a couple of little tweaks here and there. Um, and then it was just a case of Justin said, you can do it either way. You can write and use me as a soundboard, or you can just write and send me the novel, which is what I did in the end. Um, I ran one or two ideas past him. There's one or two slightly unusual um, plot points in there. I wanted to check with him because, obviously, I didn't want to finish the first draft and then have him tear the whole thing apart. And one thing I didn't know about until just before the Christmas episode was the redesign of the TARDIS interior. So I'd written all these scenes in the TARDIS that worked with going up the steps to the console. And they all had to be written because it's all chains going through the TARDIS and leading out. So there was quite a bit of rewriting TARDIS-wise there. So what's the audience for this novel? Some of the newer BBC books have been a bit wider range or even focused on the younger end of the age range. I think this is, this is certainly for um, the family audience. So it is for people... Um, who are fans of the 11th Doctor. Um, although there are, 
I won't say how many more, but there is more than one Doctor makes an appearance. Uh, just little cameos here and there in the book. So there's, I've tried to put stuff in there to please the fans as well, um, those who are fans of the classic series as well. And would you be interested in writing for any of the other Doctors? I'd love to, yeah. I'd absolutely love to. I've been really enjoying the... Um, uh, the Destiny of the Doctor series from, from Audio Go, and I'd love to write one of those, um, uh, an audio for Audio Go at some point. I'd love to write for Big Finish at some point. Um, I've been here today introducing myself and making a nuisance of myself, just like I did with Justin. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to write for uh, some of the classic Doctors. I'd, I'd Personally, I'd love to write for uh, Colin Baker, because I think he's the one Doctor that's really come on since... You know, he was given short shrift on television and wasn't, really wasn't given the chance to prove what he could do, but the way that uh, he's been portrayed in the, the Big Finish has been amazing. When you're writing, do you have a very kind of strict regime, uh, a good process behind it? I try to, I try to, but I have children. Right. Um, so normally it's a case of getting, getting up, getting the kids out of school and then getting back in writing. Um, they do tend to leave me alone if they know that, that Dad's at work in his office. So uh, I don't normally get disturbed, but uh, they don't. They, the, the boys don't see me as a as a, a novelist anyway. I'm just dad. Mm. And when you're writing your children's books in particular, are you thinking in terms of what your children would like, or, or what you would have liked when you were that age? Definitely what I would have liked. Definitely what I'd have liked. Because there's no, you know, I, if I can't get excited about writing it, then nobody's going to get excited when they're reading it. So uh, my my children's books are all vampires and werewolves and zombies and monsters and and stuff like that um, so yeah I just wrote the sort of stuff that I would have loved to, to read as a kid Was there anything that you took from your children's books when you were writing this in terms of um, I don't know, style or inspiration? Yeah, something quite large actually um, before I was a writer I was uh, an actor and an entertainer and uh, when I was 18 I performed for a couple of years as a clown by the name of Wobblebottom uh, which isn't in the slightest bit amusing. I don't understand why you're laughing. Um, but I needed I needed a clown character in this book, so Wobblebottom is in there. So in a way, you you've written yourself. Oh, absolutely. Book. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to miss out on the chance for to, to uh, have an adventure with the Doctor. So uh, presumably, Wobblebottom saves the day at the end. Uh, more or less, yeah. He he, uh, he he makes it through anyway. That was a real interesting th- thing, actually. Um, this is the first book I've ever been able to bump off characters in, because of course I can't really do that in the in the children's books. So uh, even though, you know, I've still got zombies attacking people, I don't really bump people off. But, uh, yeah, that was quite unusual. How do you handle that? How do you tackle death in a, in a novel that's for a wide audience? It's difficult. You've, you, you've, you've got to treat it um, respectfully in a way. You certainly can't start uh, throwing too much gore in it in death scene. It's, it's, it's strange. You can have a lot of gore if somebody's fighting zombies or monsters. But if they die, then you can't use that. It's very strange. Um, so it's just a case of treating it respectfully and um, hoping they go out in a in a good way that saves people. Is there a connection between the three novels in this series? No, they're all completely um, separate, standalone novels. Um, like I say, Clara's in this one. Um, Nick Briggs has written uh, the Dalek book and Justin's written Plague of the Cybermen. So uh, they're all completely separate. So we have a Dalek novel and a Cyberman novel. So who's the big bad in yours? The big baddie is the Shroud. Okay, is there anything you can tell us about the Shroud? Um, have you ever glanced up at uh, a patterned wallpaper or a shower curtain and seen a face in the pattern looking back at you? That's all I will say. Those faces have been there for a while and there's a reason they've been there for a while. That's quite scary. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Doctor Who podcast, Tommy. Thank you very much indeed. 
Tommy, thank you again for taking the time out to talk to us. Our next interview is with someone who has written written in the Doctor Who universe extensively. Simon Garrier uh, has written uh, lots of Doctor Who short stories, uh, a couple of BBC novels. He's written for Big Finish, and he's also written... Being Human and Prime Evil novels. I didn't even know that those existed. Uh, his latest story is part of the Doctor Who 50th Anniversary Collection. It is the second Doctor, Destiny of the Doctor story, Shadow of Death. Take it away. We're here at Big Finish Day 3. This is Tony and Laura for the Doctor Who podcast, and we're joined by Simon Gurrier. How are you doing, Simon? I am good. Hello. It's just about the end of the day now. How's it been for you? Well, I didn't get here until midday, uh, so I've had it quite easy. I turned up, wandered around Lost, and got called onto a panel and signed some things and met some people. That's the showbiz life of a Doctor Who writer. It's a very showbiz life, yes. So your second Doctor audio adventure for the anniversary series of audiobooks by AudioGo, co-produced by Big Finish, The Shadow of Death, was released in February. They were in another passageway, with an identical bulky door at the far end. Jamie and the Doctor both quickly glanced backwards. Yes, it was exactly the same as the passage they'd just come from. The only difference was the reassuring shape of the TARDIS in the section behind them. You could easily get lost in here. Yes, they're they're just being careful. These doors protect the rest of wherever we are if there's a flood or or something like that. So when you said we were safe... Yes, I'm sure we're well protected. It looks uh, nice and sturdy. For emphasis, he slapped his hand against the metal wall. Oh, oof! And then, with a pained expression on his face, tucked his saw hand under his armpit. Yes, you see, sturdy. So nothing to worry about. In fact, we're... oh, Oh, I think it's gone down okay. Uh, I've had some nice messages from people who liked it. Uh, I've had a couple of messages from people who didn't like the ending. Uh, but, you know, who so, cares what they think? You know, they're not the boss of me. <laughs> How did you get involved in the series? Uh, John Mainsworth, who directed and produced it, sent me an email saying, would I like to do it? And would I like to write for The Second Doctor and do something set in space? And he also outlined the because it's they're standalone stories but they um they build up to something so he outlined what he wanted me to do for that uh and he said he wanted a space set story that felt like season six so yeah and were you particularly keen on it being the second doctor uh well it, it that was just that was just what i was given um i i think some of the writers got to choose i think mark and cav got to choose the ninth doctor which i'm rather envious of just because that's the one doctor i haven't written for um but yeah i was offered the second doctor i was very happy and i knew it was going to be fraser hines as well and i'd already worked with fraser and i'd already written for him playing jamie and the doctor and narrating so i knew how that would work so i was very excited so how did you go about creating that second doctor feel in audio were you able to do anything new for it that you hadn't done before the last time I did it was an adaptation of a script that already existed, uh, The Prison in Space, for The Lost Stories. So what I was doing there was adapting a TV script for audio and for the number of cast members and so on. Whereas this um, was a new story. And also I watched most of season six again 
I say most because not all of it exists. For, I can't remember what it was, but I was really struck by just how good The Seeds of Death is and how atmospheric and exciting it is. And I just thought, I'm going to try and create the same kind of feel and the same kind of... You know, it, it was filmed... It was broadcast at the same time as the Apollo missions were going on, so it's about... You know, it, it's playing a nice conceit as man's about to walk on the moon of doing things where space travel is in a museum and forgotten about, which is a... You know, J.G. Ballard was doing stuff like that in 60s um, science fiction highbrow kind of stuff and there's Doctor Who doing it on a Saturday tea time which I just I was just really kind of pleased with um, so yeah that's that's the kind of thing I was thinking of Did you try to write something that was inherently filmable as in it could have been filmed? I, wa- I wanted it to have the feel one of the things in the brief was that it should have the feel of the programme because John's thought was that there were going to be a, a certain number of the audience who wouldn't know the second Doctor and this would be their first Second Doctor adventure. Yeah, it's a base under siege story, and it has a set number of sets, and it has a fairly basic exterior bit, which would allow for minimal filming, and it, you know, that sort of... I was kind of thinking, if they were making it, what would they actually do? And how many cast members would you have in it? And would the effects be possible? So there's a phone machine effect in there, because season, season six is full of phone machine effects. Um, that kind of stuff. And Fraser Hines was performing the piece. Um, his, I'm not to say impression of Patrick Troughton, but his reading of the Second Doctor is is almost uncanny at times, isn't it? Yeah. When we did Prison in Space, which was with Wendy Padbury, she hadn't heard it before, and she was actually quite thrown the first time because you know you're in the booths and you can't see who else is there, and it is like there's a third person. As you say, it's not an impression. It's a sense of... An, uh, what, what's really important is that what Fraser's able to do is that he's able to be the Doctor and Jamie and the narrator and at any given point you know which one he is so that you can tell the story. If there's any doubt about that, it would get confused. And, and what we had on Prison in Space was we were able to... Um, we were able to take out all the he saids and she saids and things because... Fraser was just able to do that with how he told it. So I, I knew I could tell the story in a more rich and more rewarding way. It made him... He had to work a lot harder. Um, and, but he, he cut between it beautifully. As a writer, how involved are you with the recording process and post-production? Once the script is agreed and signed off, that's really where my bit ends and the director takes it over. I got to go to the recording. I don't always get to go to the recording. It depends if, partly if I'm um, invited and partly it depends if um, I'm free as well. Um, but I got to go to that recording and there are a couple of bits and pieces uh, because I put some... The thing about the pulsars that in, is in there is because I asked my friend Marek Kula at the Royal Observatory what cutting-edge science... What I was basically thinking of was what would have been in... New Scientist, the magazine, mm. as this TV story was being commissioned, because that's what the writer would have nicked. And Marek said, well, they'd just discovered pulsars, and, and they... Um, is it Jocelyn Bell who was the scientist who discovered it? I think so. She, um, and because it was this regular signal, this regular radio signal, they thought it was aliens. They thought it was the intelligent... Thing. And now, now we know that it's a neutron star spinning round and round, and it's like a lighthouse. Then you get this this light, this uh, uh, 
emissions coming out. And I just thought, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, so I was able to kind of give them a bit of grounding on this is how you pronounce things, this is how, that sort of thing, and Topolo- Topolovic as well. It was named after my astronomy teacher. Um, uh, so, yeah, that, that, that sort of thing. But, but basically I just sat there and just geeked out while they did my story. That's what I do. And I ate the lunch. Oh, well, the lunches are good, apparently. Yeah, you may have heard. Yeah, yeah. It's, we, we try not to talk about it too much. Also, there's a hint of a story arc with the appearance of the Eleven Doctor in a, in, a, in a way in the story. How much guidance were you given around that? I don't know where it got to, but originally I think the intention was to get Matt Smith to do it or to ask him. or I, I don't know. I don't know how far that got. But my original... Uh, the original thought was that he would he would cameo or or something. So I was thrilled about the idea of writing Fraser being the second Doctor and him being the eleventh Doctor. And I did I have to submit that first? Were they? I can't remember what the order was, but I did actually write that scene. And just it was really good fun. It was one of my favourite things I've ever written, and it's just very silly, you know. The second Doctor saying, "Oh, you're wearing a bow tie." And, Matt Smith's doctor going, oh, bow ties are cool. And the second doctor going, cool, cool. Oh, do you really think so? How lovely. And uh, that sort of stuff. And just, just stupid jokes. John basically said, you know, what, for whatever reason, I think Matt's availability or, or what, what, you know, there's a hundred reasons why, why these things don't work out. Um, and it was then, we still want to do it, but we, it's not going to be him, so can you find a way to whatever. I think at that point it became much more integral to the plot, his involvement. Because at the first stage, he was just, it was just going to be him making an appearance and stuff, and, and there'd be like ships passing in the night and stuff. Um, and, uh, and then it became, how do you make his appearance part, actually take the story somewhere else and somewhere it wasn't going to go and stuff. So I think actually it's better that way. And it does, it does direct the conclusion of the story. It goes one way when it looked like it was going to go the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that, that, I think, was John's... Uh, was a great note from John, you know, make it, make it change what's happening. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us here on the Doctor Who podcast. Uh, thank you. Simon, thank you so much for your time. Listeners, we did conduct another interview with Simon in episode number 108. It's like a full-length interview. So if you'd like to hear more of what Simon has to say about being a Doctor Who writer, go back into the archives and download and listen to that episode. That's it for us for now. I'd like to just uh, send a a special thanks to Big Finish and 10th Planet Events for uh, allowing us to get some press coverage and spend some time talking to these writers. We really, really appreciate it. And there will be more coming. Uh, There'll be another writer special on its way soon. Uh, In the meantime, we have the regular Doctor Who podcast as we ramp up to the 50th anniversaries. So that's it from me for now. And we will be back soon. been listening to the doctor who podcast with steven tony laura tommy simon and me yes me you can find more episodes of the show at the doctor who podcast.com or check us out on facebook twitter or drop by the doctor who podcast forums and say hi thanks for listening take care